So I want to get my priorities straight and get you out of here quickly, right? Uh, <clears throat> super important that we do that. Uh, today we're, we're continuing our Finding Joy in Life Circumstances series in the book of Philippians. And we're in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We're actually going to put a close to this kind of first section, the first half of Philippians. And if you've been with us from the beginning, you have probably noticed that we've been studying this section of Paul's writing slightly out of order. For very good reason, embedded in this first chapter are some pretty amazing promises about how we can find and remain in Jesus' joy. And if you remember this, in our first talk, we, had, we talked about how joy, the reason we can have it in all circumstances, is because Christian joy is not dependent or derived from a circumstance. It can be. I mean, we can, we can turn to circumstances to acquire some kind of a lesser joy in life, but when we look to them for our ultimate joy, they are going to fail us at some point. So because joy is not externally imputed into us, Jesus puts it in us when we pursue him. It's truly an unassailable trait that he puts in our lives. So the big question that we we ask as we move through this series is not, why have I lost my joy? The better question would be, what am I doing in my life to seed it? You've got to give it up. Joy is yours. Jesus promises us that. So the, the root of this is recognizing not finding a greater value in our circumstances, good or bad, but finding the greatest value in the way that we experience God's grace and understand the way that he is working in our life circumstances. That's how you have joy in all circumstances, or at least try to have joy in all circumstances. So that's the first thing we talked about. Then we talked about uh, a prayer that Paul gives us. He gives us this this heart-deep prayer that says, listen, I don't just want you to hear about the promise of Jesus' joy. I want you to get to, your place, to the place in your life where you start believing it to the point that you experience, the point of talk to. And what's great about these two promises is that they're pretty amazing. They're pretty powerful. There's a theological and a practical reality present in them. But I also realize that we are people. And as people, sometimes the ideal for what God wants for our lives isn't necessarily what is happening in our lives. It's very possible, maybe you've even been in the first two talks, or this is your first one today, that you're hearing these things, you understand that joy is available to you, and you're at a place where we were talking about last week. You kind of get this with your head, but you've not necessarily experienced it in your heart. You know joy is available, you just don't feel it. You don't have it. And that's the reason I wanted to look at this section of Paul's teaching slightly out of order. We get another promise here, okay? And this is the promise that, that kind of, prom- it, it's the promise that defines all the promises. And even though Paul gave it to us first, I wanted to look at it last so that you could hear these two things that he gives us. Joy is yours. Pray for it so you can experience it. And if you are without it, I want to give you one more promise, he says. I want you to know one more thing that will help you understand how you can have it. How you can have joy in the days when you know it is available to you, but you just do not feel like it is attainable in your current circumstance. And remember the premise of that statement is that maybe you are in a, a season of bliss right now. Like when you go home, angels are opening your doors for you, and they have already prepared your favorite meal at the stove, and you know great, things are good with your kids and your husband or your wife or whatever you got going on in your life. Everything is perfect. If you're in that season, give thanks for that. But recognize that season is not always that season. Uh, circumstances go up and down in life. So this is either a talk for you now or a talk that you can file in the bank of your heart and know that you'll need it at some point. So what what is it that we read about here? What does Paul promise us? Well, it's in verse 6. It's the promise that because you belong to God, and this is a a statement directly given to those who are in Jesus. So if you're wrestling with what it means to be in Jesus or you're unsure about this, that's okay, safe place for that. But this promise here is particularly granted to those who are already in Jesus. So think about it from that angle. The promise here is that if you belong to God, even when you feel like your life isn't going anywhere, God promises that it is going somewhere. It's the promise that says the reason you can be joyful in your life, no matter what is going on, is because God has, he has, he has promised to finish 
the good work that he started in you. He is the author, perfecter, and finisher of your faith. That's what Hebrews tells us. He has promised, if you want this in a practical kind of term, he's promised to do the heavy lifting in your life when you cannot do the heavy lifting in your life. He started it, will sustain it, and will finish it for you. This is what I want to talk about today. And this really brings us to this this first critical truth that Paul shares with us about joy. If you want joy in your heart, you must rest in the truth that God has started a good work in your life. We're going to look at two ideas today. God starting a good work in your life and God finishing a good work in your life. So if you want joy in your heart, you have to foundationally build your faith on this truth. God started a good work in your life. Philippians 1, 1 through 3. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's in prison. He's at a place where he should have no joy, but he has a ton of it. He is ministering to people sacrificially in a season of life when he should be focused on himself. Right now, Paul is, there's joy coming out of every, every kind of part of his body. And he says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, the leadership of the church. So nobody's exempt from this. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason we know God has started a good work in our lives is because Paul just called every person who loves and follows Jesus his holy people. That's how we know the the starting idea, okay? Now, this term, God's holy people, is a common one in the Bible. It's one that is used in both Testaments. It It is without doubt a a marker that God gives us. It's kind of like a a trait, if you will, a characteristic. It's one of the things he calls us. It's a very, very common term in the Bible, and it has a very, very clear meaning. But what is most ironic about this term is, although the idea is replete in Scripture and the definition of it is crystal clear, it is often anything but clear in the church and amongst the religious, especially the hyper-religious of our world today, and especially in our culture. This term, holiness, or God's holy people, is somewhat of a loaded term. It's what I would call like a bit of a hot potato. It's a term that requires a little bit of defining. It is so central to why we have joy, but it is also so confused in our culture today, sometimes amongst God's people. So it needs a little defining before we move on. In Scripture, God's holy people refers to all of the people of the true church. So by the true church, what we mean is anybody who has ever placed their heart in Jesus' hands, past, present, or future, this comprises the, the, the ecclesia, the church past, present, and future, global. So to be a part of God's church globally means you are in Jesus, historically, presently, and for the future. Now, we gather in these things called local churches, so this is a, this is a, a, a church lowercase c, but when we speak about God's holy people, it is a reference to every single person who has ever trusted Christ, past, present, or future. And the idea behind this is that this is a person who has been set apart by God to wholly devote their lives to Jesus. That's the the idea behind holiness. And this setting apart idea is where the confusion usually comes from. Because in our modern religious and cultural climate, a holy person is typically seen as a person who claims to have some kind of impeccable character. Uh, For the vast majority of people, holiness refers to a select few we use words like pious, right, piety. They're kind of highlighting like a, a grade A person that is much better than us. That's what the name implies. Pious and often, if left unchecked, leads to some kind of arrogance, an elite kind of idea. And the idea behind this is that they have set themselves apart from other people because of this ability they have to follow some sort of you know, rigid code in life, whatever that code might be. Now, what's most interesting about this perspective is that even though our culture and the hyper-religious often understand holiness like this, the Bible never refers to holiness like this. The Bible is never talking about, uh, exclusive from the angle I'm talking about right now. 
like meaning you do something to make yourself great. The Bible, when it speaks of holiness, is talking about Jesus doing something for us that makes us great. There's a very different understanding of that definition. It never refers to the holy as a select group of pious people who have set themselves apart and are better than others. Rather, it defines every person who has ever been in Jesus in the church communion as a holy person as a person who's in Christ. That's the root definition of it. And so right here is where the source of this confusion stems from. It's, it's rooted in a serious theological misunderstanding of who is doing the setting apart in our lives. And this is why in our church what we believe matters, because we deeply believe what, what we believe shapes what we do. And here's a great example of misunderstanding something about who God is and what he has done. That is going to shape who we are and what we think we should do. Those four questions can never be disconnected. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I now in light of that? And what do I do? If you understand holiness as this, in this negative term, you're going you're gonna to have a problem faith. If you understand holiness from the angle of, of God being the one who is doing this setting apart, it changes things. So let me explain a little bit. It's very important. It's also kind of common to know this, that people often make the wrong connection that our holiness before God is based on what we do for him. You know, we, we've used this term here before, this idea of performance religion or performance-based religion. And so in this world, a holy one is the person who earns special favor with God because they have set themselves apart from the rest of us sinners because of the ability they have to keep God's laws. So they, they think that they kind of get something from God because of how great they are. You know, and in their church world, they don't sing how great thou art, they sing how great I art, right? <clears throat> I know my pronoun was off there, but it was a joke, right? Now, now hear me. I'm not trying to undermine the importance of our, of our desire to live in a way where we truly honor God's ways. This was our talk last week. One of the, the evidences that we are truly knowing Christ well, that we are living in his joy and experiencing it, is when we are able to discern his ways. So please hear me. I'm not trying to juxtapose this idea against what we talked about last week. We're just trying to talk about the root of this idea. What a text like this is trying to get us to see is that the Christian who understands holiness like this, like I do something to make God love me, they are destined to do anything but please God. And they will also consequently live without joy in their life because it is inevitable that they will become a person defined by a righteousness that is not their own excuse me, a righteousness that is their own. Their joy in life is not because of, it's not because of Jesus, it's because of them. And it creates an attitude, or at least it has the high capacity to, to create this attitude of graceless religious superiority, all because they believe they can earn God's love based on how they live. And so what happens here is you have a, you have a wellspring of joy in this person's life. It's just derived in a warped way from circumstantial success in following God. What I do... And what I do for God, although this matters, is why God loves me. And the, the problem with this is that on the days you do things that are great for God and you are changing the world for him and selflessly loving your neighbor and sacrificially living for those around you, you will feel amazing. But on the days, like we talked about last week, where you do not do any of those things, you will inevitably feel ruined, wrecked, and robbed of your joy. There are going to be days when you fail God. There are going to be days when you fail other people. And for those of you driven types in here, there are going to be days when you fail yourself. That's the worst person to fail at times. And that is guaranteed to happen at some point because everybody makes mistake in, mistakes in, lives, in our lives and there are times when we fail. And so the root problem with believing this way is that it is an evidence of, of thinking that you are actually the one who has started in sustaining the good work of faith in your life, not Jesus. We already have a, a wrong origin point, which means our destination will be problematic. You believe, or I believe, that, that the sustaining and starting work of faith in our life is due to us, not Jesus. Now, here's the hard reality with this, is this is just not true. 
and we would all be in trouble if it were. Here is where we begin to migrate into the grace idea of holiness. You know, Scripture is pretty clear here in the definition of holiness and other places that explain it. Pretty clear that nobody has the ability uh, to do anything that can merit God's love. If you've been in the Christian world for a long time, 20 years ago we called this works righteousness, right? It was the idea that you could do something to make God love you. But Scripture is clear that we can't do anything to make God love us. We can't do anything to merit his love. Because here's the problem with this. God's love is not for sale. It's not that cheap. It's a gift. It's a grace. And it's something you have to believe and receive. It's super clear, despite our personal opinions of ourselves at times, that that it is not that we are pleasing to God because of what we do. There's a really positive reality to that. We're pleasing to God because of what Jesus has done for us. Which means... It means God's love for us is permanent and present in our lives no matter what's going on, even when we are not doing well in seasons of our life, even when we are joyless and struggling. So while the definition of holiness literally means to be wholly set apart for God, it's crucial that we understand our holiness is based on God and his grace setting us apart. Not Jesus, uh, excuse me, not us in a self-righteous way setting ourselves apart. And much like most of the other important truths in Scripture— this is a simple statement. God sets you apart. You don't set yourself apart. It is a simple statement, but it is a, th- a theologically significant statement. And it shapes an understanding of holiness that lays, I would say pretty dogmatically, the foundation for the whole Christian life. It reminds us that this identity, you know, you're God's child, God's holy people here, these incomparable identities that God gives us because we are his children, here God's holy people, and the joy that comes with it, it is built on the truth that God alone has made us these things. God has made us holy, not because we've done something, but because he put Jesus's unchanging, unlearned, unearned, permanent, eternal, holy love on you, irrespective of your performance. That's what makes you holy. Romans 5.8, I've said this in here before, best example we have of this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when you were well, when you were doing good. It says, listen, when it was pretty bad, when, when you were not even looking for God's love, when you were at a point in your life where maybe you were looking for it, but it was kind of impossible for you to feel it or experience it or earn it, it's explicitly, explicitly clear here that God is the one who begins the work of faith in our lives at a time when we are very far from him and unable to do so in our own strength. And there's a great joy and hope in that. It means that God will not leave you to hang. He will not leave you out to dry. He will pursue you to the place where even, even if you don't get it or don't want to get it or you're confused about it, and you're struggling with it, God loves you enough to say, I get it, I get all that, and I'm still going to demonstrate my love for you, even at a point in your life where you might not have any for me. That's the beauty of understanding holiness and grace this way. And with that holiness and grace comes a pretty serious responsibility. There's a reason we've been set apart by this, or like this. And the main reason you and I have been set apart by God is so that we would find our ultimate joy in wholly following God's ways. Again, joy is rooted in Jesus, but it's connected to us knowing and discerning his ways. This is what Paul talks about last week. You've got to press into the rhythms of Christ if you want to experience his joy. It's naive to think that we can, we can live a life disconnected from Jesus, but yet want his, what is joy. It's kind of a, it's a problematic equation when it comes to the spiritual side of Christianity. Now, one of the evidences that you're truly living as a holy child of God is when you, just using the analogy, because it's used in other places in Scripture, it's when you desire to be raised by your Father in heaven. There's a, there's a paternal designation here. It's when you, with all of your heart, begin to embrace and love the ways of God to the place that you want to grow more deeply in God's image and his holiness. You want to be more like your Father, is essentially what Paul's saying here. That's what God's holy people means. So think of it this way. Another good analogy that, that is used a lot in Scripture, and Paul specifically uses it a few times in Philippians. We'll kind of introduce it today. 
The Bible regularly compares the Christian faith, in particular holy living, how we pursue God, to the lifestyle of an athlete. And if you've ever played a competitive sport, you, you know why. It's largely because of the intense nature that athletics require. They require a discipline both physically, mentally, and spiritually. To succeed in a sport, really doesn't matter which one it is, I had to discipline myself to not make jokes about golf here because I know a lot of you in this room love golf, so this is a grace for me to you. I know you are for golf, but I am not. <laughs> uh, so to succeed in a sport, no matter which one it is, you have, to, you have to discipline your life, right? You have to reorient your whole life around the identity of what it means to be a good athlete. Athletes start thinking about what they're eating. They start thinking about their sleeping habits. They start di- thinking about how they hydrate themselves. They recognize they require a certain amount of rest to properly perform on a game day. They practice almost every day, and they do it under the direct supervision of a coach who guides and directs them and who promises them that, that the reality of what is being put on their lives, the expectation, is so that they will do well. If you have played sports, and I have, and it never usually it doesn't always feel good what your coach is telling you to do, but you know your coach wants you to succeed. So there's this real trust that develops there. And so if you want to do well in a sport, you, you have to at some point begin separating yourself from things, from certain things in life while, while simultaneously committing yourself to other things in life. Kind of a, a you know, little joke, less pizza, more running. That's probably a good thing, right? So the reason athleticism is regularly used to describe the Christian life, and particularly running, that's Paul's main analogy. The reason this happens in Scripture is because many of the same principles apply. So when it comes to being a, a holy people, like Paul talks about here, calls us here, The idea is that even though the root of all holiness begins by the act of God setting you apart, that's where it begins, when he sets Jesus' love on you, after that happens, you and I are supposed to spend the rest of our days wholly disciplining our lives to grow in that holiness, to grow in God's ways. That's kind of where Paul was going in the verses that follow. You know, pursuing Jesus to the place where we start to understand who he is and we know who he is. As a Christian, there are really two ways you can choose to wholly follow God with your life and to experience his joy. And these two paths are similar to the honey analogy that I gave you last week. You get them once a year, at least, because they're so valuable to understanding our life in Jesus. And the, the, the challenge with these two paths is that if we're already in Christ, it is almost guaranteed that we're already on a path. So, so for us today in Jesus, we're not going to have to pick one. Most likely, we're going to have to identify which one we are already on. So for the next few minutes, because this is so central to having joy in life, it's so central to the foundational teachings of Philippians, I want you to kind of meditate on this a little bit and to ask yourself, which, which path am I on? And to do this, I will very briefly read uh, about six verses of Scripture, seven, uh, five or six verses of Scripture from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, which give us the two paths you can, uh, you can walk down to follow Jesus. There no, there's no greater example of this, these two heart attitudes side by side, than what we have in this conversation between Jesus. It's a parable that Jesus gives us that records a conversation between a tax collector who is the first century scourge of the world. This is a person who, um, who is disdained by everyone for various cultural reasons. He's a traitor to his own people um, because he is uh, typically first century tax collectors were employed by the Roman government. And the Roman government would essentially hire a local Jewish person and then impose incredible taxes uh, on, on the people. And so what would happen is the tax collector would then take advantage of God's people and oftentimes, in a very corrupt way, take more taxes for themselves. So when Jesus says, listen, this person here is like hated by culture, that's what he's talking about. Okay? And then he talks about a Pharisee who is esteemed by culture, at least in this worldview. Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness, there's that works righteousness thing I talked about, 
To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men, two paths, they went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You can see he is evoking like an arrogance over this other human. And he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, here's where the game changer was in this teaching. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, this Pharisee is the quintessential example of what happens when you think you are the author, sustainer, and finisher of your faith. This attitude is what happens when you believe that God loves you because of what you do. This guy believed he was holy in God's eyes. He was great in God's eyes because of what he did. And at the end of the day, when this is left unchecked, it causes you to think you are better than other people. And that's why he can, in such a callous way, talk negatively about another human being whom God loves just as much as him. And as a result, he becomes proud, insensitive, and arrogant. On the contrary, though, while the tax collector recognizes, the tax collector knows his role in society. It's not a good one, right? So, the, so it is the guy who is least likely to be exalted, right? He is the guy that, um, that essentially recognizes his posture and says, look, I'm a tax collector, and I know that I, I can't do anything to make anybody like me. And I've recognized that connected to this is that I can't earn God's favor. So rather than bragging about himself, he asks for grace and he finds it. And that's why Jesus says that guy goes home justified. That guy goes home with grace in his life. And with that grace comes hope and peace and joy because he's free. He has been freed from, uh, from the shackles of this type of faith. He has been freed from a joyless pressure-based religion. And so you see one of the foundational truths that you must embrace in your heart. Because if you think you will have joy when things are well, that the, the natural result of this is that you will have no joy when they are not well. This is, when, this is why understanding the root of your joy in Jesus here matters. One of the foundational truths you must embrace in your heart if you want to have Christ's joy in your life is a deep recognition that God has started the good work of faith in your life. Not you, not me. And we certainly have a major responsibility to that. To, to, we, we have truly something that God expects of us because of what he has done for us. And Paul will unpack this over these next chapters. That gracious act should compel our hearts to want to love God and serve him. But the true heavy lifting of our faith, the burden, the onus of that is not our responsibility. We have a responsibility in it, but it is not our ultimate responsibility because God is the author, sustainer, and perfecter of our faith. The practical application of this truth is huge. Here's what it means. On the days you are without joy, you should stop beating yourself up over it. On the days your spirit is willing to follow Jesus, but your flesh is not, do not seed your joy. I mean, don't, don't dwell in that rhythm, but don't give up in that. Rather, turn to the one who has set you apart to follow him. Turn to the one who promises you that he will get you to the place you need to be in your own life on the days you do not think you can get there yourself. And when you know you are holy like this because of God doing the setting apart, it's freeing. When you know you're holy and loved and you're God's people because of Jesus' love for you, something, natural, something unnatural starts to happen. You almost have to do less to grow more. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to do nothing, but I'm saying you start recognizing that the heavy lifting of your faith 
if you put that in God's hands, you are bound to genuinely grow in your love for God, your holy living, and the peace and unassailable joy that comes with both those disciplines. Because you're now tapping into the king's power to build his kingdom in your life. That is a truth you have to press into. And it is all rooted around one word. We just spent this whole time talking about what it means to be holy. And hopefully none of you will be finding a tax collector in a foyer talking about how bad they are as a person. Now, there's a basic understanding. This is a great topic to study if you want to delve more into it, but I think we have enough of a basic understanding of what holiness is and isn't in Scripture that we can move on to the second promise. I'm going to shift gears and look at this second truth Paul shares with us here, but I want to remind you that getting what we're about to talk about is really dependent on getting what we just spoke about. You'll never believe God will finish your faith if you think you are the author of it. So Paul tells us this. If you want joy in your heart, you must rest in the truth that God has promised to finish the good work he has started in your life. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this. Okay, so we know God started the work. He tells us a couple of things to do. He's thankful for partnership, joy. And then he says, be confident in this, speaking about our faith, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the promise of completion is tethered to the belief of, of origination here. And in verse 6, God makes another incredible promise to us. The promise to finish. Inherent in this promise is that God is the great author, sustainer, and finisher of our faith. That even when life appears to be out of control, the reality is God is in control. He is graciously bringing about his good and perfect will in our lives all the time. He's doing it in his church. He's doing it in our lives. And it should give us great hope. Think about this. This is a promise to the Philippian church that God made good on. It's a promise to our lives today, before our lives today. And it's even a a promise for our church. We celebrate six years of being around. That's the idea behind this promise. It's a recognition that God is a God of completion. He's a God who always finishes what he starts. That's why this sermon is entitled that. And this promise is a particular one that is meant to encourage us in our faith and in the work of our faith. It's the promise of Christian perseverance that we can rest in when life gets tough. We know that when fear and doubt seek to sit on the throne of our hearts, when serving Jesus loses its luster, when our faith starts getting stale, when whatever is going on in our life that is keeping us from experiencing joy, we have to know that joy is available to us because God is promising to get us over the finish line when we don't even want to anymore. This is a promise that says, no matter how tumultuous life gets, the work of grace that God has begun in our hearts in the work of his church, past, present, and future. Um, The movement of the church, right? I like to call this a 50-ton diesel train. Essentially, if you've ever seen one of these move down a rail, nothing can really stop it. It's just going to barrel over whatever is going on. This is the promise this this verse gives us today. It doesn't matter what's happening. The train is moving forward. You've got to open the blinds and look out the window. It's still moving. This promise is why you're here today. This promise is why our church is still here today. And as a tangible evidence of this, I want to share with you guys Um, some of the ways that God has made good on this promise by working through all of you this past year. This is why I deeply encourage you to be here this week. I want to show you, my hope in this anyways, to share this with you, is that you would see that God is always working, many times in ways in our lives and in our body that we might be unaware of. What I'm about to share with you is a very abbreviated list of, of the ways that all of you have served and blessed the people of our city this past year. We're into the, the second month of 2016. We've been able to compile most of our data, and we always give you a little bit of this encouragement report in this year, in the following year. And I want to preface what I'm about to share with you with this one statement. The key word here is that this is some of the things that we were able to track. 
Obviously, we don't know everything that goes on. And as I'll share in a moment, we don't even know everything you guys do. These are the things that corporately we were able to figure out we did as a church, okay? And I want you to see that there is always more going on in God's lives and in our lives than we can ever record or we'll have time to share. But nonetheless, we have some stuff to celebrate. So last year alone, okay, God trusted our church enough to make it a place, and even to this day, where he's still sending new streams of people um, who make this place their church family. Churches are like families, so not everybody fits, but there are people who do fit in families. And so from this, this steady stream of visitors, um, we were able to plug 17 new people into community groups, and we were able to launch three new community groups. And if you're visiting with us today, the reason why this is so significant for us is because we deeply believe that community group involvement is the primary way you can grow in Jesus in this church. So this is an example of people taking a next step with Christ. They're growing in their faith with other people and beginning to serve their neighbor in the ways that God leads, leads those, those micro families. Beautiful. We also saw last year uh, 21 people become gospel partners with us. You might remember that one of the biggest groups ever was standing uh, down here. The theater was like tipping over that week, and I think they broke some instruments, but we just let it ride because it was such a great Sunday, right? Now, that was a 25% increase over, over the year prior. We have prayed that God would raise up a pedigree for partnership in our church, and he's doing that. That's what's happening just a little bit inside the walls. We made Christmas possible for a myriad of hurting families by providing uh, over, a little over 65 gifts, right around 65 gifts, um, to, to the people in our city. So this, these are partnerships we've developed with local entities where we don't do a, a, you know, a, a general angel tree anymore. We actually have local partnerships with people where we get to touch the hands of people and we get to know them and serve them. 65 gifts went out the doors of this church. This was staggering to me. You know, our, our church last year gave away just around $10,000 to our community in renewal ministries, in the lives of people in our church family, and the city by providing things like counseling, benevolence, caring for orphans, feeding the homeless and the marginalized, and supporting church planning. We are proving the fact that while we want to grow as a body, we want to grow as a body, not just in this place. And so it is a super priority for us to recognize that we don't just hoard up our time, people, and money here, but that we, where God provides, serve and meet the needs of people wherever we can. And it encourages me that our church is in some gritty areas of culture right now. That's encouraging to me. We're going places which are not necessarily, I've said this before, we can't even really post pictures on Facebook of some of this stuff, but sometimes we're dealing with people in the marginalized in forms that, that is, we're honoring Jesus, and that's good enough for the people doing it. Listen to this one. This blew my mind. We served just shy of 4,100 hours in the community. This is just serving. 4,100 hours in the community in our local school system. Several of you tutor. Some of you are connected with, uh, with birth moms. This is our, our adoption ministry here. We're trying to support the kids that don't have parents and the parents that have to give them up, right? We, and the hungry and the homeless. To put that in perspective, there are about 8,700 hours in a year. So our church gave away half a year last year in serving our community in whatever ways that God led us. I think that's great. I think that's great. And, and since our launch, we've had uh, 40, about 40 people come to Jesus, about a little over 30 be baptized, and 14 be dedicated to Jesus. So we're seeing the fruit of physical, spiritual, and cultural renewal. This is killer stuff. It gets me pretty excited. Uh, it made me very happy when I was writing this sermon Monday morning. I was like, man, this is, man, man. I kept just typing and typing this stuff. I didn't like having to read through all through the Excel sheets, but once I got the stuff on my Word document, it was wonderful. So keep this in mind, right? This doesn't even include everything you guys do that you don't tell us about. Your spontaneous acts of generosity. Uh, I, 
I'll never forget, about a month ago, I was in the library, ran into somebody from our church who was in a CG, and they were telling me about what they were doing that week to serve a local family. They didn't even know about it. And that's exactly how I'd like to keep it. I'd love for us to have things we do as a church, but things that you do just because God is leading you in your own world. This doesn't count the meals you provide for the sick or the hurting amongst us or the grace you show others, not connected to our church at all. We can't even track that stuff. So you can, it's guaranteed that you can add time, material, and labor to these numbers if we were to figure out that stuff. So all this shows us that we are continuing to put one of our guiding values into action. It's an evidence of what I said the first week, that I think our church, as far as the New Testament churches go, we are more like the Philippian church than any of the church in the New Testament. We are not the biggest or the flashiest church, but we are an impact church. When you pop the hood, stuff is happening. Stuff that exceeds the natural boundaries of what should be happening here. We are a church about the raw work of the gospel, and that's what we want to grow. This shows us we're continuing to put one of our guiding values into action. We are a church that is living sent. We are a church that recognizes we are to be receptacles for God's joy. But as I shared the first week, we're also to be a wellspring for others in our city. And I'm happy, I'm thankful for what our church is done corporately and what you guys are doing individually. So be encouraged, and please hear me, keep up the good work. I think that that's awesome. Thank you for that. So kind of wrapping up, I'll say this. Why do I share this? Why, why is it important to kind of talk a little bit about what God has done in our, in our talk today? Because this teaching shows us that if you want joy in your life, you have to regularly celebrate what God has started in your life. Sometimes today's hardships can be diminished by recognizing the ways that God has worked in your life. The, the, the grace of yesterday becomes a grace for today. But one of the other things I want to point out, based on what Paul says here, is that we should never celebrate what happened yesterday at the expense of what he still wants to do through our lives today. And so despite the legion obstacles we often face in life, have faced as a church this past year, and in the work of the gospel, we need to point out the fact that everybody's still here. And this is one of God's great promises to us, because he started a good work in our lives, we can rest in the fact that he will finish a good work in our lives. He finishes what he starts. We will persevere. And so if you're here today dealing with a voice of opposition in your life, if you are keeping you from becoming who God wants you to be, if somebody in your life is keeping you from becoming who God wants you to be, if a circumstance is making you joyful or one, a, a bad circumstance is defining you in a negative way, if a repeated attempt to see change in an area of your life without success is discouraging you, if you're having a hard time being a disciple of Jesus, or if you're frustrated as you're trying to make disciples of Jesus, or something else that I have not mentioned to you, if something is keeping you down, you have to remember that no one, not even you, can tell you who you can or cannot be in Jesus. Nobody, not even you, can tell you what abilities you have in Jesus. And the reason for this is because the completion of your faith is not dependent on you or those other things or those other voices. They play a role, but they do not have the final say in your life. Paul tells us here the ultimate role, the ultimate say in our lives and all these things is your Father in heaven. And he has promised to make you joyful and to finish what he started in your life. So be at peace, have hope, and seek joy because God has promised not only to sustain you in your time of need. That's enough to get through today, but I don't know about you. I want to do more than exist. I want to thrive. God has promised to sustain us and to carry us across the finish line of our faith even when you no longer can. That's the promise he's made to you, that he'll get you to the place you need to be. He's gonna, you're going to make it. And so when you listen to his voice, things change. Amazing things start to happen. You will believe that you can do amazing things for God. You will believe that you can change. You'll believe that you can find freedom from things that trip you up in life. You'll believe that there is a release from negative emotions or circumstances that want to cripple you. The reason you should not be afraid of adversity 
if you're serving and following God with all your heart, if you are truly one of God's holy people, it's because no matter where it is coming from, you have been built to survive it. You have been built to persevere through it. You're his holy child. And that means God has given you everything you need to stand strong. He's promised if you look to him, he'll see you through. He's promised to get you to the place he's leading you. He's promised that in his strength, you will persevere. But perseverance, know this, is a promise you must press into. It's a promise you must believe and function under. So if you don't have the strength of that today, ask God to give it to you. Because if you don't, you will likely adopt a posture of fear and defeat in your life when it comes to the good things that God wants to do in your life. And that's a very bad thing. Because if you live in fear and denial, if you live in fear and defeat, you miss out on the great adventure of joy, which is why Paul has written written us this book. Following God should lead to a joyful life. Not a perfect life, but a joyful life. You'll miss out on the great adventure of pursuing Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind. So don't. Use the time we have right now to ask God to show you if you really believe that he is the starter and the finisher of your faith. Ask him if you believe that. Ask him to help you experience the reality of what it means to believe that stuff deeply enough. Ask him to create in you the wellspring of unassailable joy that it should create in you if you adhere to them. Ask for belief to shape reality. And as we close, ask yourself, and all that we've talked about today and all that we've sung about, what is Jesus saying to you about the good work he has started in your life and promised to finish in your life? And what is it that you intend to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the promise of joy. Thank you, Father, for the strength you give us to have it. I thank you, God, that in a talk like this, we learn very clearly that while we have a responsibility to our faith, to the one you have given us, it is our prayer that we never take the full burden or onus of our faith on our shoulders in such a way that it cripples us from becoming who you want us to be. So today I pray, no matter where we find ourselves, that you would help us to find the right balance for this in life, that we would not let the promise that you will start and finish our faith create negligence or apathy in us, but that we would not be so burdened in our own walk that we would forget about the fact that you have promised to start and finish our faith. Our prayer today is that you would bring a Holy Spirit-infused balance into our hearts and lives, that we would know how to follow you and love you well. And I pray, Lord, that during this time of response now, you would just speak to our hearts, God, shape our minds, and help us to understand who you are and who we are now in light of that reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.